Hello, I'm Candy Crespo with the Carrie M. McGuire Center for Ethics and Public Responsibility at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for joining us today for a series that we're doing on teaching ethics in higher education as we talk with authors who have written on the recent book, Ethics at the Heart of Higher Education. For more information on this series and the McGuire Ethics Center, you can visit us on our webpage at smu.edu ethics. So today's talk is using the humanities in professional education, the how and the why. It's with two of our distinguished professors um, and the current and former director of the McGuire Ethics Center, Rita Kirk and Tom Mayo. Uh, Dr. Rita Kirk is the William F. May Endowed Director of the McGuire Center for Ethics and Public Responsibility. She is an Alt Schuler Distinguished Teaching Professor in Communications and co-editor um, of the recent book, Ethics at the Heart of Higher Education. Tom Mayo is an Alt Schuler Distinguished Teaching Professor as well of law and SMU's Dedman School of Law. He is an adjunct professor of internal medicine at UT Southwestern. Um, and he is the previous director of the McGuire Ethics Center and author of the recent paper, Using the Humanities to Explore Professionalism in Medical and Law Schools. So I will let Tom and Rita take us away. This work is based around the book that we edited called Ethics at the Heart of Higher Education. And the book is uh, written by all the current and former chairs of the Ethics Center and the endowed chairs, the McGuire and the Skirlock chairs, as well as our colleagues at UT Southwestern. And we are delighted that we get to have these chats with the various authors to talk with them about their work because their work is really interesting and fascinating and there's just not enough time in any book to really deal with some of the more interesting issues and areas. But I wanted you to understand the passion that goes behind the writing. And in that, there could be no better person for us to talk to today than Tom Mayo. Tom, I, I want you to start for just a minute by talking about how you wear these two hats between law and medicine, and what inspired you in the first place to find that connection? Well, that's a, um, I, I guess, a, there's a long answer and a short answer. I uh, started off my college years thinking that I would end up being a physician, um, thinking about surgery, um, and a surgeon that I was very close to, uh, actually the surgeon who took out my appendix in eighth grade, um, was kind of my mentor in all of this. And I remember talking to him about what he does um, as a surgeon, um, and not just as a surgeon, but as a person. And his answer was, well, I do surgery and I read surgery journals. And I said, what else? He said, that's it. Now, I was very impressionable and very young and thought, um, not very hard about his answer, but it impressed me as being exactly what I did not want to do with my life. Um, and so um, I reoriented my undergraduate studies toward philosophy, um, which I thought opened more do doors than it shut. Um, but that in long-term interest in medicine stayed with me. Um, and so I was kind of an informal student um, of medical uh, developments, of the practice of medicine. Um, and um, by the time I got to SMU to teach in 1984, um, the thought occurred to me that uh, what the world needs um, is a good law and medicine class. Um, there were law and medicine classes out there, uh, but they're mostly about medical malpractice, not about 
um, the much deeper and more thoroughgoing connections between the two professions. So I dove into that project headfirst and at the same time started working on um, a medical ethics and law course. Um, this was back in 87, 88, um, 10 years after the Quinlan case. Um, and when the courts were just starting to get involved in a lot of really interesting um, cases that involve medical ethics. So For those that, that don't know, Tom, can you just remind our audience what the Quinlan case was? Yeah, the Quinlan case was the first Supreme, state Supreme Court case that recognized um, a couple of things. One was the right to refuse all treatments, including life-sustaining treatments, and the right of family members to make that choice on behalf of an incapacitated uh, patient. Um, by now, uh, all 50 states recognize that right, uh, but Quinlan out of the New Jersey Supreme Court was the first in 1976. So you write a great deal about the importance of writing. And most lawyers, as we know, write well, and many physicians are not known for having much of a handwriting at all, but they, um, you're, you're trying to help them develop something that you've defined as narrative competence. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what narrative competence is? I borrowed that term from Rita Sharon, who's an internist um, in New York City, uh, who just happens to have a PhD in uh, literary studies. And um, her ongoing project is to combine um, the study of um, narratives uh, with the study and practice of medicine um, to enrich uh, practitioner skills. Uh, the idea being that uh, doctors tell stories all the time. You know, when they meet up with another doctor at the faculty club or um, in the room where they change uh, scrubs or whatever, wherever they encounter one another, if, if you hear a sentence that starts, I had a patient who, what follows from that is going to be a story. It's going to be a narrative. How that narrative gets constructed, uh, what gets included in the story, what gets left out of the story, what gets emphasized, um, what gets de-emphasized, um, all of that is uh, shaped by the narrative skill um, of the person who's talking. Lawyers engage in the same kind of uh, activity when they write a brief to the court to explain what happened and why their client should win. Judges engage in that activity when they um, write an opinion and have to explain uh, what it is about the facts of this case that lead them to a particular legal conclusion. Um, and it's, it's human nature in a way. We're storytellers. Um, what, some of us are better storytellers than others for sure. Um, but it does seem to me that there's a certain minimum level of narrative competence um, and, and the ethical implications of being a storyteller about other people's lives um, that baby lawyers and baby doctors need to um, encounter, confront, uh, wrestle with and uh, hopefully improve. So can you talk a little bit more about the ethical component of that? Where does the ethics come into the writing of it? Well, there's, um, there's some basics. First of all, to state the obvious, um, 
both professions have an obligation of confidentiality. So those stories don't get spread willy-nilly in ways that disclose client confidences, identifiable client confidences, or um, what we now call uh, personal health information uh, under HIPAA. Um, but so, you know, thousands of years old tradition that confidentiality applies. Beyond that, I think um, you have an obligation um, to seek the truth, um, to not misrepresent, um, to not leave out critical details. Um, and at the same time, um, every single detail uh, is probably an impossible goal and may actually hinder ethical um, analysis. And so um, I think that um, the touchstone, for, the ethical touchstone in constructing narratives is to be true to the patient or the client um, and to work toward an, uh, a resolution of uh, what ails them, either legally or medically. It seems like in your analysis of narrative competence, you also talk not only about the stories that we tell others, but the stories we tell ourselves. Is that a, a part of the ethics of how we observe the world? I, I think it absolutely is. Um, we uh, have framing devices that we use all day long, um, every day, um, to make sense out of a welter of um, experiential details. Um, at a sort of somewhat higher level than that, though, um, I was really uh, affected by Bill May's um, approach to professionalism and professional ethics. Um, he distinguished between quandary ethics, case-based quandary ethics, um, which he uh, summarizes in the, in the sentence, uh, what shall I do? Do I unplug the ventilator or not? Do I prescribe this? Uh, antibiotic for a patient with a viral infection or not. Um, there are, um, you know, questions posed on a daily basis for lawyers and for physicians that require the resolution of a quandary. Some quandaries are easier to resolve than others, but um, that's, that's the case-based level. That's where my bioethics and law course basically is pitched, is um, looking at cases and trying to figure out what the principles are there and how those principles might guide us in future cases. The other, what he refers to as deeper vein of professionalism um, is um, summarized by the question, whom shall I be? What kind of a professional shall I be? Um, what kinds of relationships will I have with my patients, with my colleagues, with my family, um, with others in the community? What are my obligations? What are the opportunities? Um, and at that level, I think, um, constructing our own stories and making those stories fit into, um, a larger coherent picture of, that situates us in a community and not just a professional community, but the community at large, um, it has to be an ongoing project. It's one that, uh, I think we evolve, um, into and, and never quite leave, um, for most, if not all of our lives, we're, it's a sort of constant reevaluation, redefinition, um, exploration of boundaries and those sorts of things that I think narratives, personal narratives that we construct for ourselves, uh, make a difference. And a lot of stressful situations 
a lot of people in law and medicine do what many of us do on a daily basis, which is repress and move on. Just try not to think about the quandaries that you're having to face or the stories of the people that you're treating or uh, representing in a court of law. In your courses, you spend a lot of time trying to get people to think about how stories affect them, about grappling and expressing um, those feelings and emotions that you have welled up inside kind of as a self-healing. Yeah. Um, it's a privilege to be able to um, meet with medical students or law students for a few hours a week and to do that. Um, the pitch that I'm making to them um, is that it's not a 24-7 enterprise. It can't be. At some point, you hang up your white coat, you go home, and you change the light bulb in the hall closet. Um, you know, life goes on. You have other obligations to family members at a minimum um, to not bring all of the pressure and all of the difficulty of your professional life um, to the dinner table. Um, and, and that's a hard lesson for people to learn, especially folks who tend to be very self-reflective. Um, it's hard to put down um, how you felt about uh, visiting your client in jail. Um, you know, it, these are things that um, I'm not arguing for a strict compartmentalization necessarily, um, but there has to be a way that you learn how to dial it down and dial it up. Um, and I think that um, the stories that uh, we tell ourselves about uh, those relationships even. And they may not be stories that are all that explicit. It's just a version of reality that we carry in our head and edit as we go through the day and as we go through our lives. Um, and so um, for those two hours that I have my law literature and medicine students on Friday afternoons, for the hour or so that I have medical students um, in their ethics uh, training at UT Southwestern, um, we take hopefully a really deep dive and, but I do also recognize that, um, there have to be times when, uh, they just sit back and say, okay, enough is enough. I need to, to just, you know, cool down, um, turn to something else. You, you spend a, a good deal of your professional career working with these students, teaching folks in the professional schools about the value of the humanities. So in some of your exercises, you've had them work with poetry, both reading and writing poetry. What are some of the other things that the humanities courses and subjects can do for us that help us grapple with these professional quandaries? Well, if I had been nearly as creative as Steve Long was in um, the title to his piece in our book, um, which was uh, Can Ethics Be Taught? The subtitle, at least, of my chapter would have been, Can Empathy Be Taught? Um, my project uh, through literature um, is to develop empathic skills on the part of students. Um, some are more receptive than others. Some come to the course with an amazing ability to see a situation, to see the world um, through the eyes of their patients or the clients they encounter in the student legal clinics. Um, 
others are st still have a long way to go. Um, and I, we could talk for the rest of the hour about whether empathy could be taught. I have to say I'm kind of skeptical uh, that ethics, that empathy can be taught to people whose personalities have basically been more or less fully formed um, at this point in their lives. Um, but having said that, um, I'll also add that I think they're at the very beginning of, of developing their professional identities, their professional personalities, I guess you could say. Um, John Noonan was a distinguished law professor before he became a distinguished Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals judge. And he wrote um, a very influential book called um, Masks and the Law. Um, and uh, I'm going to use and abuse that title um, to say that I think part of professional education is developing masks that we wear as professionals. Um, literally, if you're talking about a physician um, who masks and maybe wears a white coat um, or a surgical gown, um, as, and as part of the persona uh, that physicians develop as a kind of professional um, patina, if you will, um, a way of talking, a way of engaging with patients. Um, and that's part of the culture of medicine that starts in the first year and continues for all four years of training for a doctor. Um, for lawyers, um, the mask may be pinstripe suits um, and expensive shirts and, and fountain pens and the rest, but we build up an identity. We build up ourselves as professionals um, that creates a separate identity or an additional identity on top of who we are. Um, and that begs the question that, that Bill asks, which is, um, well, um, whom shall we be? Who do you, what do you want to be in your professional life? Uh, what's your professional identity? How do you define uh, the way those relationships are created and built? Um, and my goal um, in a way, uh, I offer this course in the very last semester of the medical school training for the med students and law school for the law students is to not necessarily undo all of that culture building, if you will, and that identity building, um, but to make the students aware of it. Um, having been embedded in that educational culture and professional culture, for two and a half years or three and a half years at that point in their lives um, to get them to see that um, they can still be a human being. And it's important that they be a human being and not just a human being who is a lawyer or is a doctor. That isn't, in my view, the defining characteristic of a full professional. Um, the closest I get to admitting this in class is telling them in the syllabus that it's a course about professionalism. Um, I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think my syllabus mentions empathy at all. Um, but um, what, what I'm hoping to do is to um, demonstrate through the readings and through their activities in the class, um, a kind of uh, empathy. So as an example, you mentioned writing poetry. Um, you write poetry uh, in this class, as, as most poets do, I think, for an audience. And so one of the things you have to think about as you're writing is how is somebody going to encounter this poem? Who will they see as being the author of this poem? 
what will they see this poem describing, being about? Uh, what are the concrete details doing here in this particular poem? Um, and, and that's going to shape how they write the poem, is to anticipate the reactions, the responses of this hypothetical reader. Um, the other big activity we do in class, there's no final exam and there's no final paper. What there is is a final project. Each student creates a work of art of their choice. Um, it could be choreography, it could be painting, it could be sculpture. Um, most students opt for writing something, whether it's a series of poems or short stories or a novella. Um, there's a fair amount of photography from year to year, often combined with text in a creative way. The text might be from works that we've read. The text might be um, material that the students have written uh, themselves. Again, what I'm, what I'm hoping to do is give them an opportunity to exercise that empathy muscle, to um, ask the questions about who's going to be reading this and why, and what am I trying to communicate and how. Um, and it, it creates a kind of back and forth in their minds that I think is a prerequisite to be being an empathetic professional. Um, and, you know, for some students that works great, for others, um, it's a white knuckle flight the whole way because, you know, part of it is they're scared about being creative. Um, and I can't tell you how many students, um, maybe more medical students than law students, I have to admit, uh, say, I don't have a creative bone in my body. Uh, and of course they have a creative bone in their body. They just don't know it yet um, or call it something else. But um, I want to take that innate creativity and move it, bend it toward um, expanding their understanding of what they're about to be um, doing as professionals. Um, so, you know, can empathy be taught? Um, I'm skeptical. Can empathy be modeled? I think I do that in the class every week and do it through the projects that they work on. Um, and, you know, I have to say, it, I think it's an open question as to whether it does any real good. Um, I think one thing I, I wish I had done early was to start a kind of longitudinal study that could be continued across the decades to see if um, the course has any impact on, on students by testing certain attributes before they start and then during the course and then a year later, five years later, 10 years later, um, I would have a really good paper. Um, to publish on that if I had done it. Um, I remember being at a cocktail party for my undergraduate school alumni and alumni um, cocktail party here in Dallas, and I met a physician um, who asked what I taught, and I told her about this course. This was 25 years ago. <laughs> and I don't know if it was the martini or my answer, but her eyes just sort of glazed over, and uh, her only comment at the end was, why would anyone want to teach a course like that? Or it was either that, or why would anyone want to take a course like that? Um, and I have to admit that, um, you know, professional education has by and large focused on the nuts and bolts of developing the skill set you need to be a competent physician or a competent lawyer. Um, there's a wonderful poem written by an internist uh, in Wisconsin 
um, by the name of Schneiderman, who um, was not a keynote speaker, but he was one of the uh, featured speakers at a conference I attended at the University of Chicago Medical School a long time ago. And he borrowed this line, I think, from a distinguished physician and ethicist by the name of Edmund Pellegrino. And one of the lines in the poem is, the first kindness is competence. Mm. And I agree with that. Um, you have to be a competent practitioner um, or you run the risk of doing more harm than good. But I want to expand on the notion of competence beyond a set of technical skills to include the, what some people consider the softer uh, skills of um, relationships, of conversation, of storytelling, story building, the, the, those things that um, there aren't many books for, or at least haven't been until the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, what we're now seeing actually is an explosion of writing about writing uh, in the professions and by professionals. Um, one of the most amazing books I've ever read, uh, I read during my uh, years in the army uh, in between undergrad school and law school uh, called um, The uh, Lives of the Cells. Mm. Um, and it's a series of New England Journal of Medicine essays by Yale uh, Medical School professor that he collected into a book. Um, and it's, it's essentially the humanities meets medicine. Um, and it's an amazing thing when you think about it. This goes back now probably 40 years that the New England Journal of Medicine thought it was important to publish these kinds of essays. Um, and that a uh, professor of internal medicine at Yale um, thought it might be beneficial for him and others to write them. Um, and that kind of kicked off what I would call the modern new wave of practitioners writing about what they do, um, but from an oblique angle, um, from the perspective of uh, somebody who spends an evening every month listening to Mozart. Um, and, and find something there that enlarges his understanding of his place in the universe, his place in society, his place in the medical hierarchy, his place in an examining room with a patient. Um, and all of those levels of experience uh, and existence um, are enriched uh, by that kind of writing and for us, that kind of reading. You know, um, I, I did a little background research and getting ready for this. And what I found was that most of the people, by far an overwhelming majority of people who enter the field of medicine and still a majority of people who enter the field of law do it because they think they can make a difference for people. They believe in ethical values of justice and healing and all sorts of really good positive traits do you think in part what you're doing in these courses is to help them get back to the why? Why did you choose this field? And um, what drove you to do the long hours that's necessary to become competent? Yeah, um, I joke about this with my students, but it's a really serious thing and it's a really real thing. Um, to some extent, law school and medical school um, are uh, boot camp for professionals. Um, boot camp for me in the army was eight weeks of um, drill sergeants trying to beat the humanity out of me and then rebuild me as a soldier. 
Um, and as a philosophy major coming out of a liberal arts undergraduate school, um, that, that was a pretty big transformation. Um, and in law school and medical school, um, we're trying to um, turn civilians into professionals in our image. Um, you know, there's a scene, I think it's in Paper Chase, where Kingsfield um, poses a question to the students in his contracts class. And one of the unlucky students says, well, I feel as though, and that's about as far as she gets. And he says, I don't care how you feel. I want to know what you think. Um, and, you know, that sort of encapsulates it for me. Um, I care about what they feel. I care about engaging their ability to engage um, the questions in the case, not only from a purely analytical perspective, but also understanding the human dimension of the people who were involved in this case in the first place, whether it was an auto accident case or an insider trading case or a death penalty case. Um, and so um, what I tell my students only half jokingly is I want to turn them back into human beings. Um, to some extent, I don't have a cure for the acculturation process that we engage in over all these years, but I want to offer a tonic. I want to give them um, some material that they can learn from and gain a new perspective about what they are doing from um, and, and do it in a way that it sticks with them um, long after their formal education is over. Um, if one of our goals is to have students who become lifelong learners, um, this type of learning um, can continue as well if they continue to engage. Um, and uh, it, we all are familiar with the term humble brag. I'll humble brag here for a minute. Um, all of the things that I've just said about the course uh, have gone through my mind from the very beginning. And um, those, those are, uh, in a nutshell, the goals that I have for the course. I did not appreciate um, how that might actually change the way former students are practitioners and engage their uh, professional uh, challenges. And then out of the blue, um, in the space of about a year or so, I got two messages from people who had taken the course five, eight, 10 years earlier. One was from the valedictorian of the medical school class, her medical school class. The other was the valedictorian uh, here. Um, so students who had mastered the art of academics, right, of, of study and testing. Um, and they each had the same message and it just shocked me. Uh, and it probably shouldn't have, but the message was, this course was the most practical course I took in fill in the blank, medical school, law school. Um, and I never thought of the course really as being all that practical. I guess I thought of it as being, you know, pretty, um, you know, high level humanities, more than actually, I don't know, um, just a, a sort of different level of engaging the materials than learning the anatomy of the hand um, or learning the elements of perfecting a security interest. Um, and yet I felt as though they'd actually given me the, the greatest compliment I could have ever 
received from students who've taken the classes, um, that it did influence their professional lives, that they did continue to think about this, um, that it did uh, have an impact on their um, development as professionals. And um, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to, um, to do that. Um, there aren't many schools, in, law schools in America where you can get a course like this. Um, law and literature has been on, in the curriculum for a very long time. I took a law and literature course when I was a law student in 1975. Um, it had been around for a while before that. Um, medicine and literature, medicine and humanities, um, maybe slightly more recent vintage, but not much. Um, and a lot of medical schools have those courses. Um, but the idea of bringing 10 medical students and 10 law students together in a conference room for, to engage in a discussion um, of a poem by uh, John Keats um, is um, fairly unique. Um, and I only half understood what I was doing when I started it, I think. Um, but to get uh, those messages um, really sharpened my understanding of what I ought to be doing with this course and what I had been doing, whether I knew it or not, um, and the parts, the way the course fit into uh, their lives. It was just very gratifying. I think you're right in, in asserting that sometimes it's the experiments that we do, not knowing exactly when we start, where the end may be. But in that experimentation process, I wonder if there's some models that we should be thinking of um, for the future. For example, you have talked as we pull back the conversation into the more academic setting, uh, that there's two approaches to ethics education in professional schools. There's a pervasive method and an embedded ethics model. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that and give us some insight into where ethics can perhaps best be taught. Yeah, um, we're getting a little bit into the chapter by John Sadler and his um, co-authors. Um, Coming up soon. Okay, good. Um, it's a really important topic. Um, in law school, which is I'm more familiar with um, than uh, how this all plays out in the medical school curriculum, although Jim Wagner's on the call and uh, there's nobody better qualified to talk about that than Jim. I hope he'll uh, engage uh, when we open this up for questions. Um, for years and years and years, um, maybe the better part of a century, law schools have acted as though we um, meet our ethical obligation or our obligation to uh, make our students ethically aware and competent um, just by sort of modeling ethical discourse um, whenever it strikes us to do that um, in our other courses, in contracts and torts and, um, you know, any other substantive legal course. Um, and that's the pervasive model is that, you know, it's everywhere um, and everybody has an obligation to address the ethics of whatever it is they're talking about. Um, how should the lawyers behave um, when they encounter this kind of legal problem? Um, okay. Um, but when it's everyone's obligation, it turns out to be, I think, nobody's obligation to um, do at least do a good job uh, teaching uh, the ethics of a particular uh, encounter or situation. Um, after Watergate, the ABA said uh, 
since most of the Watergate uh, defendants had law degrees, um, that maybe uh, ABA accredited law schools needed to do a better job with ethics. Um, and there are still a few um, law schools that, that follow the um, model that I just described, but um, embedded, uh, which has a lot of different connotations that most law schools, including SMUs, means a couple of things. One is there's a separate course in professional ethics. Uh, we call it professional responsibility here. Um, I've never taught that course. I'm not an expert in medical ethics, um, or sorry, legal ethics, um, at least not, you know, in an academic sense for sure. Um, but we also have multiple opportunities for students to go out into, into the community in a law setting, uh, in-house counsel setting, say, or a prosecutor's office or defense counsel's office, um, and to, um, encounter, um, these ethical um, dilemmas in real time um, and with all of the messiness um, that real cases uh, present. Um, and I think that embedded ethics instruction um, is um, one aspect of what John Sadler and his co-authors co are writing about, um, but I think a really important one for students to have before they go out into the real world uh, after graduation. Um, so there are certainly different models of how to approach uh, ethics. I guess I uh, would be a proponent of anything and everything that makes students more ethically aware. Um, because I think one of the, the biggest threshold issues that professionals encounter um, is identifying an ethics problem as an ethics problem. Um, just understanding that what you're talking about has ethical implications and needs, those implications need to be addressed as well as the technical ones. Um, and so um, anything and everything we can do to make um, our students um, better ethical practitioners, um, I'm all for it. And, and that includes um, reading the Cider House Rules by John Irving. I think, you know, that works too. You know, I, I love the fact that you spend so much time talking about those two important questions, what shall I do and who am I? Those seems to be questions that are universal struggles. And the fact that you come out of a philosophy background as an undergraduate and that you've applied that in your professional uh, settings, I think is instructive for all of us. There's been some, so much discussion over the years about what's the proper role of ethics in um, even undergraduate education. And I wonder if you could speak for a minute about how important you think humanities is for undergraduates to study as a way on their path to become professionals. Well, you're talking to someone who chose an undergraduate pathway that um, from top to bottom and inside out and backwards was um, all about the humanities. Um, and uh, that was true for science majors at my school as well as um, English majors or uh, sociology majors. Um, I, I think that um, the humanities is under, are under a lot of um, pushback these days, a lot of pressure to prove their value. Um, and we have metrics to measure um, what the humanities um, accomplish for 
um, our undergraduates after graduation. Um, and I really resist that. I almost said resent that, but certainly resist that um, approach to the humanities. I think the humanities should just simply justify themselves, and they do. Um, again, they work better with some students than others. Um, some are more receptive to what those kinds of materials bring. Um, but there's actually a, a really interesting law review article that was published, again, about 20 or 25 years ago, um, uh, that the law is part of the humanities. And I think um, it doesn't take any leap of imagination to situate medicine within the humanities as well. Um, it's obviously about science. It's obviously about medicine. It's obviously about um, a lot of very technical things. But if we don't also um, look to the humanities to remind us how medicine uh, fits within the larger goals, visions, aspirations, needs of society um, and of the individual members of society, um, then we're, we're really underserving um, our students uh, and the society that supports um, medical education and legal education um, through grants and scholarships and all the rest that come out of the public fisc. Tom, I want to thank you for having this great discussion with us. And for those of you who are um, joining us today on this podcast, I do hope that you'll get the book, Ethics at the Heart of Higher Education, available now on Amazon. But in, <laughs> thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. But in particular, you should enjoy reading this chapter where he gives um, much more in-depth details about the arguments that he was talking with us about today. And Tom, we want to thank you. Sound Ethics is a production of the Carrie M. McGuire Center for Ethics and Public Responsibility at Southern Methodist University. Thoughts, views, and opinions of Sound Ethics speakers do not necessarily represent the views of the McGuire Ethics Center or SMU. The McGuire Center supports student and faculty ethics-related education and activities, as well as outreach to community, private, and public institutions. Learn more by visiting us at smu.edu/ethics or finding us on social media at McGuire Ethics.